0: Hello, this is Lucy. Welcome to Footnoting History. This week, I'll be looking at Ivanhoe, a wildly popular romantic novel with great prose and terrible ideas about the Middle Ages. This and all of our Footnoting History episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. When I say that Ivanhoe is a novel with terrible ideas about the Middle Ages, I say this with great love. I loved this book wholeheartedly when I was in eighth grade, and I cannot renounce this love. But also, the more one knows about the Middle Ages, the weirder this novel gets. Such are the complexities of this text and its legacies that it's getting two episodes. In the first part, that's today's, I'll be talking about how Walter Scott created some very popular tropes of medievalism in this novel, and about what medievalism is, anyway. To this end, I will also be analyzing the novel's characters and examining some elements of its plot, so if you haven't read Ivanhoe, don't worry, you won't be lost. If you have, I hope this episode helps you look at it in a new way. So firstly, what's medievalism? A short answer is that medievalism is popular interpretations and representations of the medieval past, and that can take in everything from Disney World to Ridley Scott movies and beyond. It can be gritty or grimdark fantasy medievalism taking inspiration loosely from the European Middle Ages, or it can be a shower curtain with the design of a 15th century tapestry on it. The work of medievalism has been defined as the attempt to bridge a chasm between a modernity imagined as axiomatic, where this is self-evidently just the way things are, and a past assumed to be irrecoverably unknowable. I might add that the medieval past, particularly, is often imagined as modernity's other, a time when people were irrational and primitive, supposedly unlike today or looked at another way as full of youthful naivete, good faith, energy, and optimism. Again, supposedly unlike today. In a minute, I'll talk about how we see these apparent contradictions coexisting in Ivanhoe. We can think of medievalism as a way of interpreting the Middle Ages, imagining the Middle Ages, and even inventing the Middle Ages. Scholarly interpretations of the Middle Ages are, of course, dynamic, evolving, and affected by the preoccupations of scholars and their our societies, but they are also crucially dependent on available sources. Medievalism, not being dependent on sources, has a lot more to do with vibes, to quote medievalist Megan Cook on what she has called dirtbag medievalism. In the Middle Ages, as popularly imagined, we can have both romantic tournaments and colorful banquets, and widespread, even normative, suffering and violence. And yes, all of these things turn up in Ivanhoe. If you're thinking, but that doesn't make sense, you're right. But as Marcus Bull has observed, the options for the imagined Middle Ages were largely set in the 19th century and in the 19th century, there was arguably no more influential work of popular medievalism than Ivanhoe. And in many ways, Walter Scott's medieval world is an idyllic one. It opens in that pleasant district of Merry England, which is watered by the River Don, in the middle of a large forest where there are still stories about dragons and abandoned stone circles. But the first conversation we have in the book is between two men who are legally unfree about the laws and customs which make their lives miserable. The novel contains a colorful tournament, chivalric exploits galore, and a king who goes disguised to help his people. But it also includes an elaborate sequence in which Rebecca, Jewish protagonist and fan favorite, is tried for witchcraft because, wait for it, she has practiced medicine. Will future ages believe that such stupid bigotry ever existed, exclaims another of the characters? Well, yes, sadly, because this has become an extremely durable cliché about medieval society, even though approximately none of it is true. But it is very important to Scott's ideas of a distinctly medieval kind of religious and social prejudice and distinctively medieval irrationality. Now, To Sir Walter's credit, his critiques of social intolerance had a lot to do with the intolerance of his own time. So in 1819, a character shouting about stupid bigotry wasn't just letting the audience feel superior to their medieval counterparts, he was also encouraging them to reflect on the bigotries of their own time. In Scots Great Britain, for instance, Jewish people couldn't vote, and Catholics had only held that right for just over 25 years. The relationship between England and Scotland, too, to say nothing of Ireland, was still both fraught and unequal. While the transatlantic slave trade had been outlawed, slavery itself had not yet been abolished. In short, Ivanhoe was published at a time of great public advocacy for legal change and reform in a variety of spheres, and approximately 15 years before the first big wave of Victorian reforms tackling poverty, education accessibility, and other issues. And in writing Ivanhoe, it was Scott's explicitly stated goal to inspire the present through thinking about the past, as well as, of course, to entertain. As for research, well, Scott was something of an antiquarian, but he was also very genre savvy about historical fiction. And he presented Ivanhoe as drawing on the so-called Warder Manuscript The catch is, as I discovered to my great chagrin when I was a teenager obsessed with both Ivanhoe and the Middle Ages, that the Warder manuscript doesn't exist. Sir Walter made it up, presenting it as the possession of one of his own characters, a rather silly baronet. So Ivanhoe is what we might call loosely based on the medieval past, even as the omniscient narrator often digresses on what he presents as historical realities. Ivanhoe's Merry England is both invented and extremely influential. Let's take an excerpt from the first chapter, in which the narrator is filling us in before introducing us to Gerth, the loyal Saxon swineherd, and Wamba, the multilingual jester. A circumstance, which greatly tended to enhance the tyranny of the nobility and the sufferings of the inferior classes, arose from the consequences of the conquest by Duke William of Normandy. Four generations had not sufficed to blend the hostile blood of the Normans and Anglo-Saxons, or to unite by common language and mutual interests two hostile races, one of which still felt the elation of triumph, while the other groaned under all the consequences of defeat. The power had been completely placed in the hands of the Norman nobility by the event of the Battle of Hastings, and it had been used, as our histories assure us, with no moderate hand. The whole race of Saxon princes and nobles had been extirpated or disinherited, with few or no exceptions. Now, this is lyrically seductive prose, and from a historical standpoint, it is pretty much nonsense. But it is a model that endures in Every Robin Hood movie, and to some extent in the popular imagination. In this same passage, Scott informs us that quote unquote feudal tyranny, a kind of made up thing, was antithetical to the English constitution, and that the English language is far more manly and expressive than French. So there's a lot going on here. What's going on here, moreover, is a subject with clear resonances for Scott's audience on both sides of the border between England and Scotland. As the novel continues, Scott asks, through his characters, a lot of interesting questions about systemic and individual abuses of power, and about individual and communal identity. At this point, you may be wondering how a novel with long descriptions of forests and feudal tyranny became a popular bestseller. For one thing, Sir Walter Scott was a hugely popular author. Think Stephen King levels of fame. Also, Ivanhoe is addictively readable and full of fascinating characters, even if you sometimes want to hit those characters over the head. This is, for instance, my relationship with Cedric of Rotherwood, the stubborn Saxon landholder who is determined to undo the Norman conquest. This works out about as well as you might expect. Ivanhoe also includes such highlights as Robin Hood winning an archery contest and King Richard winning both a drinking contest and a punching contest. Yes, really. This book is absolutely wild. If you're interested in playing medievalism bingo, with dashing knights as a free square, here are some common tropes and stock figures that turn up in Ivanhoe. Are you ready? We have torture, tournaments, castles, and a crone. We have disguises and damsels in distress. We have warlike masculinity, a tyrannical patriarch, abuses of justice, and also men in tights. We have banqueting scenes, Merry England, The Medieval as Idol, a shout-out to King Arthur, and Archaisms, forsooth. We also have Courtly Love, Corrupt Monks, Powerless Peasants, and a Church that hates everything. There's a dungeon, witchcraft, trial by combat, a comic relief sidekick, and entirely gratuitous singing. To be perfectly clear, I am a fan of the gratuitous singing. So what is Ivanhoe about? To a large extent, it's about Englishness. It's about who gets to participate in English community, who gets to define that community, and who gets to hold power in it. Remember that passage about the Normans and Saxons quoted earlier? When the book opens, Prince John, described as light, profligate, and perfidious, is doing a terrible job of being regent because he's a terrible person caring only for luxury and the favor of his courtiers. Ivanhoe was published during the Regency period, so that's not exactly not pointed. The condition of the English nation, Scott informs us, was at this time sufficiently miserable. I often want to yell, stop trashing the 12th century at Sir Walter, but it's true that England had emerged from a traumatic civil war only a few decades earlier, and that the wars led by Richard I left the country deeply in debt. Weirdly, the traumatic civil war is scarcely mentioned in the book, though the novel is pervaded by the threat of a new one. Cedric of Rotherwood, written as a type of the bluff country squire, views the Norman rule as illegitimate, and wants to set up a rival monarchy with Athelstan, descendant of Saxon kings, and his, Cedric's, beautiful ward Rowena, herself descended from Alfred the Great. Cedric has just one problem. Neither Athelstan nor Rowena is keen on this plan. Rowena has gone so far as to swear that she will become a nun before she goes along with this plan because she views it, correctly, as neither desirable nor practicable. Rowena, in short, is both smarter and more steely than readers generally give her credit for. She's cast as the damsel in distress, and Scott informs us that she is naturally timid and yielding because of being blonde, which is, I need hardly add, 19th century pseudoscience. But in actual fact, Rowena is observant, strong-minded, and compassionate, and deeply in love with Wilfred of Ivanhoe. Wilfred, our title character, is Cedric's disinherited son, and he's also the figure whom Scott is presenting as England's new bright future. A Saxon by birth, he's loyal to King Richard and himself culturally hybrid. He speaks English, French, and Arabic, and refuses to get caught up either in the prejudices of his father's generation or his own. Also, interestingly for a title character, Wilfred does not spend all that much time at center stage. He saves the Jewish merchant Isaac of York from assassination, and is subsequently helped by Isaac to enter a tournament incognito. But after that, Ivanhoe spends most of the novel grievously wounded and more or less flat on his back, which is itself an interesting way of critiquing the norms of chivalric romance. The knights who spend the most time feasting, jousting, putting on disguises for nightly shenanigans, and defending a castle under siege are in fact terrible people. And the literary ideals of chivalry, which Scott assumes were a real medieval thing in ways that they maybe weren't, but that's a topic for another day, are also explicitly called into question. In Scott's romanticized vision of medieval norms, chivalry is always bound up with a sense of how social obligations work. These obligations are often structured in unequal ways, but nonetheless binding. Still, not everyone takes these things for granted, When Ivanhoe is brooding about not being able to join a battle, Rebecca, who is unequivocally the most awesome character in the book, calls him out on it. Rebecca, the daughter of Isaac of York, is intelligent, learned, and a skilled healer. She is also acutely aware of the fact that her Jewishness and her gender both make her socially vulnerable. While Scott would not have been familiar with our contemporary vocabulary of intersectional privilege and intergenerational trauma, those are absolutely things he's interested in exploring in Ivanhoe. And when Ivanhoe says that he wants to join a battle for the glory of it all, Rebecca asks if a great chivalric reputation as a hero of ballads is an adequate reward, quote, for the sacrifice of every kindly affection for a life spent miserably that ye may make others miserable, unquote. Ivanhoe, having no good answer to this, simply informs her that she doesn't get it. But it is Rebecca to whom Scott gives the last word in that scene, and in the novel. It is Rebecca's experience which gets the most attention in the final chapters, despite Sir Walter having a whole lot of plot to wrap up. And in the end, in this novel about England and who gets to define its future, Rebecca leaves it. Rowena encourages her not to. Rowena encourages her to stay, to be honored as a family friend, and to convert to Christianity. To Rowena's credit, she has already treated Rebecca as a friend and an equal. Her respect is not dependent on conversion. But it's also not an offer that Rebecca is interested in taking. Rowena protests that Wilfred's personal advocacy will be enough to protect Rebecca and her father from anti-Jewish prejudice but this individual promise is not enough. The people of England, Rebecca says, are a fierce race, quarreling ever with their neighbors or among themselves, and ready to plunge the sword into the bowels of each other. Such is no safe abode for the children of my people. And this is a harsh final verdict with which to end a novel about medieval, and not just medieval, Englishness. Rowena and Wilfred get married and live more or less happily ever after, though Scott points out that Wilfred's career was curtailed because King Richard died young for stupid chivalry reasons. And Rebecca goes to one of the Islamic kingdoms of Spain to practice medicine in a more inclusive society. So there's clearly a lot going on here, and I haven't even spent much time on some of the great prose set pieces that make the novel so colorful and so beloved. For these, you'll just have to read Ivanhoe, which is an experience you should have at least once. And for more on the culturally hybrid characters of Ivanhoe, the internal contradictions of the novel itself, and the many ways it has been interpreted as representing both the medieval past and a social ideal, please come back next time, when I will be talking about Ivanhoe and America's Middle Ages. Until then, this is Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at HistoryFootnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as FootnotingHistory. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.